Hello, and welcome to Androids and Assets. I'm Stephen. I'm Marshall. And today we are discussing a 2020 Hugo Award-winning novel, A Memory Called Empire, by Arcady Martin. Initially published in 2019, it's a very interesting book, and uh, as we say, riding high on its... uh, Hugo Award, overcoming all the controversy of the award ceremony. Uh, I mean, I don't think it had to overcome any of the controversy itself. No, I don't think. It's not a reflection. Don't let the hosting of the awards uh, impact the the award itself. Uh, So congratulations to uh, Katie Martin. We have some thoughts about this book, I think. I think it's it's safe to say. Yeah. I think a brief summary of it to be uh, concise is essentially a young woman from uh, a marginal culture. Uh, travels to a, a dominant culture as an ambassador and immediately finds herself embroiled in some pretty heavy-duty political intrigue. Dun, dun. And in the process, saves two civilizations. Marshall, how did you feel about this book overall? And and I guess about the by extension then winning the Hugo. Do you think it was it was a deserving uh, book? Yeah, I, I quite enjoyed this book when I read it. Um, I read it a while ago as part of a book club. I, I think the consensus of the book club was that it was a quite a skillful novel. The story was good. I mean, you, like any story, there are some some flaws in there, some things that you're sort of like, oh, okay, like this whole thing took place in a matter of days, a week, maybe. Yeah. Like it was, it was a very short time frame. Over, overall for like a brand new ambassador to be embroiled so heavily in in the intrigue and not just immediately sidelined hard to believe in, in a certain respect and you know some of that is dealt with um because of the memory device that they they wear so you can sort of say well yes this particular embodiment of the ambassador has only been there for a couple of weeks or a, a matter of days but the previous ambassador had been there for a decade before you know yeah and everyone's operating on memory the- Everyone's operating on the presumption that he's still there. Yeah, yeah. yeah. There's a few things that were just sort of like like minor quibbles of like, oh, there's some this I don't like or that I don't like, you know. Mm-hmm. But overall, the story was good. The the writing was very strong. It was for the most part clear. You understood, you know, the intent of of what the author was saying. So it was <laughs> never really like took away from it. Even with some of like the the language that was introduced, you know, the 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 takes Kalan language being there, uh, some of the the odd naming structure of people all of those you know sort of serve to enhance being in a foreign environment Mm -hmm. without taking away from the story of like i don't know what's going on i can't understand any of this yeah it balances exposition with the plot yeah fairly well considering there is a lot of exposition that requires doing for sure so i think you know a strong shortlist and uh yeah i'm I'm quite happy to see this as a winner yeah and uh from a political economy side there's quite a lot of politics it's uh it's heavy in the politics it is so we, i think we got a lot to talk about there i mean it's a it's a space opera right so uh, i think space opera kind of gonna have some politics it's, it has to it's always like a king or something somewhere i don't know it's part of the it's in the space them that's space opera law you know yeah yeah so i think one of the things that's important for context is that the main character mahit uh she's from a marginal space civilization called the south station they don't live on a planet, live in a space station. Their kind of unique cultural trait is they have these things, uh, these imago machines, which are devices that help carry memories of previous people. Uh, and you can kind of carry them inside you. They're kind of like the Trill a little bit, actually. If you want to go back and listen to our episode about uh, a study in Trill, which was about a couple of weeks back from our Deep Space Nine episode, we kind of talk about why uh, transmission of memories 
create massive economic advantages and, and create a lot of efficiencies when you don't need to like teach people things, but you can actually just give the memories of people to other people. It really, it's a game changer economically. It makes a huge difference. Anyway, yes. So that's an important part. Uh, of course, the problem that Heat faces when she arrives is that her imago is broken. So everyone thinks she has the memories of the previous ambassador, uh, but in fact, she does not. So she's faking it the whole time. And normally you would you would get an imago machine from somebody who had, had died and you would have the entire course of their life. Their ambassador died had died unexpectedly, you know, on the capital where she was going to be sent and they requested a new ambassador right away. So she has an outdated machine that he, he has been there for a couple of decades uh, and she gets a recording, you know, the, the copy of him that was made after only a decade there. So it's not even, you know, quite up to speed on everything that's going on. Um, and then, and then to compound that it's broken. And so she, she only has access to it from a short time in the beginning and then sort of in, in fits and spurts. It creates a lot of fun, anxiety and uh, cultural, uh, Cultural faux pas. Yeah. Cool. Uh, I love I love stories about people making uh, social faux pas. It speaks to me on a personal level. <laughs> uh, but yes, so but I think we're, we're going to get down into the politics and economics. Not a lot on the economic sides expressly. Um, we know that the stationers largely trade in tungsten and other metals they mine from space to to the, this empire, the Texcalon. Yeah. Yeah, I'm, so I'm interested... Uh, you know, if 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 uh, Arcady, you want to expound upon this for me, are they human? Is this is this like sometime in the future we have left Earth and settled other planets, and one of them becomes takes Kalan, and some of those people end up, you know, also going out as yeah. and, and ending up in an cell station? Are are we just like adopting the human capitalist system that we have now and taking it out into the we wider galaxy because? That's what we've got. And the number of things that were changed culturally and like adapted and made different were, you know, pretty extensive. Uh, but then the economic system was straight up capitalism. It was just like American modern capitalism of like, we take advantage of some small cultures uh, and we produce a lot of stuff on our own, but like we import a lot of stuff and we export really like not things, but ideas. Yeah. Tesclon in the main is really a service economy. It really yeah. is. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> like we get stuff that's good because, you know, we're, we're very populous and we have a lot of big guns and if you don't give us what we want, we'll just take it. Yeah. Kind of the deal here. Uh, and everyone just really lives in fear of you know, getting on the wrong side of Texcalon. So there's not like a lot of sort of discussion of, of yeah. the, the economics of it, but it from from all of the feelings of it, it was just like, oh, just a, like a modern capitalist system, yeah. I guess. Yes. Uh, Rules-based Texcalon order. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> Big theme is like empire uh, and then kind of what that looks like and then also then inter the internal politics to empire then when you consider when you are like kind of a very powerful civilization and you consider yourself as very supreme kind of how do you function um well, i think one of the big economic things and then one of the things that really kind of didn't make a lot of sense for me is that the Texcalon have made a very conscious decision to for the most part remain baseline human uh, so that they're kind of like tra more transhumanist type technologies, such as the Imago machines and other things, seem to exist and have been developed by some cultures, but are largely shunned by the by the Texcalon who refuse to have 
cybernetics. Um, like outright ban them. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And they have a, have a social taboo against, um, against cybernetics and, and kind of more you know, transhumanist developments. We were talking about this a little bit earlier before, before the show, but some people have called this um, cyberpunk. And so maybe the sky hooks, these are like things that they wear over one of their yeah. eyes yeah. and it just feeds them yeah. social Facebook media monocle. And, and news. <laughs> yeah. yeah, the Facebook monocle. As well as like serving as a, a tracking device and it's like your cell phone, but you don't have to hold on to it. You just <laughs> pop it over one eye and it's always there and always feeding you. Yeah, it's Google Glasses. Except for some reason, people don't make fun of you. <laughs> well, I mean, maybe. I thought Google Glasses were more for recording everything that went around, went on around you rather than, like, giving you information. But yeah, Fair enough. It was more of, like, Google saying, please record the world for us. Uh, it turns out people don't like that. Uh, yes. Weird. So Some people call it cyberpunk. But the main elements that I, you know, I think would make up a lot of cyberpunk or could have been a cyberpunk story if, if this was, and this is not, the, some some elements of transhumanism, you know, being expounded upon and, and the dangers of, or, or warnings of transhumanism or the warnings of, you know, encroaching uh, overreach of, of corporate powers and, and those sorts of things. They didn't have any of that. Um, no. So the only, like... Cyberpunky elements were the maybe the Imago machine and and the sky hook. Yeah, which is kind of like, well, I mean, it's science fiction, but it's not it's cyberpunk. Yeah, and yeah. So uh, there you go. That's our hot take on sci-fi taxonomy. Sci-fi logony. <laughs> exactly. Uh, okay, great. There's issues. One of the things I think though is when you have like I don't know how well a baseline human. I think a baseline human civilization would encounter a lot of econo- would have a lot of trouble competing economically with cybernetic humans, right? So, for example, I think people who sleep just don't have the economic edge. People who don't, you know, other human beings who say don't need to sleep or, you know, can automate certain parts of their brain functions or whatever um, have certain economic legs up on mm-hmm. people who don't have those impediments or those barriers. So it's like, you know, how, how did they come to, the, I guess my question is, how did they come to the top in, given the status of the arms race? There are other transhuman cultures that exist, but maybe there's a dark side. They wrote really great poems. Well, fair enough. They got there on their memes. Thanks. had such dank memes. So I think those were the main economic kind of themes, I guess, uh, just in terms of what's going on there. They also have a weird obsession with, like, not having, like, electronic messaging. So everyone, like, shares basically thumb drives around or something called info fleece. And they come, like, with a little seal on them, which I guess was, it's fun because you get, like, old-timey old-timey letter drama uh, with, like, you know, having to, like, break a wax seal and stuff. And then, like, a hologram pops out at you, which is cool. But it was, it was strange. And I think has some, again, has some profound economic and military implications for the Texcalon. Like, on the one hand, I guess it's more secure. But also now it's like, oh, I need to tell my commander on the front something. Like, let me let me just mail this flash <laughs> drive to him. My, my thoughts on it were that it's not very secure at all. Okay. Uh, I think at some point it, it's mentioned that like the seal around it could be broken and then restored. Yeah. Essentially in, without being noticed. Mm-hmm. Um, and then they, they're like, all of the, the letters are in a cipher. Right. Yeah. But that cipher to encrypt, them. to encrypt them is like publicly known essentially. And it's based on, you know, the most recent hot poem. And so it's like, oh yeah, here's the, here's the public cipher that we're all using these days. Yeah. So neither of these elements actually added to the 
security. But everyone said, well, it would be so taboo to break the seal. No one would do it. That we wouldn't, no one would do it. And I was like, Come okay. On. But if you were at war with somebody, you'd definitely break the seal. Yeah. Taboos be damned. I'm going to kill this guy. I mean, if you thought your wife was cheating on you, you would. Like, you know, like, I do feel that it's more secure, just in the sense that it's not sitting somewhere in a central database that anyone can access remotely, like our emails. Uh, yeah, I mean, I guess. Except that the cloud hook saw you write it. Okay, anyway, we're, we're, moving, <laughs> we're moving right on. That, that opened a whole can of worms that, oh my gosh, I don't even want to think about. Damn, that's right, isn't it? Yeah, that's true. Okay. And then I guess Weird. politics now. Uh, there's a, We have an interesting allegory, I think, for this story because it's really about, again, like a small civilization adjacent to a large civilization and it's really fighting uh, to remain separate against the empire that we're all remembering. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I'm stealing this joke from Spectology. I'm sorry, Spectology. The allegory that we're talking about, it's us. We are the allegory. Marshall and Stephen. <laughs> That's right. Yeah, it's, uh, it's not us. It's... Well, I mean, it, it, like it's us. It's Canada. Canada being next to the United States, we very frequently, uh, there's the comparison of, of like just getting American TV channels, right? Like I grew up watching a number of channels from, I don't know, ostensibly border towns, yeah. uh, you know, like Spokane. But I even got some like from Rochester in New York and and I live on, like, the other side of the country, so I don't know why that one came through. Cable, man. Whatever. Cable's yeah. weird. And that's kind of what it would be like on a cell station, right? It's like... Yeah. They're constantly You're, you're just constantly getting takes Kalan poems, and you've only got, like, you know, three channels that give cell poems, so you have to you can read those, or you just turn and read these really sweet poems that are coming out of. Yeah, well, I think I think yeah, because, yeah, and because Texelon is their primary trading partner as well, which again is a Canada, yeah, Canada's primary trade. So, so there's really, I mean, part of it is on LaSalle, they speak Stationer, which yes. is their own dialect, um, which is a little different than Canada. But I guess we have our French, but we uh, also speak the Queen's English. Right, yes, we do spell color differently, and I feel that that's under threat now. That's um, right. <laughs> I, I will say... We'll, we will be fighting hard to keep the U in color. <laughs> and yeah. neighbor. Yeah, that's right, yeah. We, we, these, are, these matter to us. But I, I do want to say that just in terms of, like, yeah, like, the language, I guess, is a little different, but essentially, like, everyone basically then, now, if they want to do something in LaSalle Station, needs to learn Texcolon, yeah. because that's how they do business. And it's it sounded like a lot of them did. There was a few people who were like, nah, I don't speak stationer, stationer. But and you know, we don't we don't get a lot from the stationer perspective. But like she had classes that she took. Yeah. Takes Kalan. So they have people who are you know, proficient enough to do instruction in it. And she had peers in the classes yeah. that could also it's hugely felt on LaSalle Station, yeah. despite it being a separate culture because they're very much integrated. And this is, I think, very much the case with Canada. Mm -hmm. uh, and so much so, Canada and the U.S. being so integrated that there is a threat that maybe Canada's identity could ostensibly fold itself into American identity. Uh, and that's At least why. among the Canadian Settler Society. And we can talk about you know, maybe yes. other elements inside uh, out beyond that. But certainly that Anglo-Settler Society um, doesn't really have much of a raison d'etre a reason to exist <laughs> uh, in, you know, on its, on its own. So there needs to be like a kind of, a, we need to kind of push back against the U.S. And this is, I think, a very real thing that LaSalle 
station is experiencing. Yeah, and, and much the same as, you know, uh, LSL Station has a counselor for culture. Canada has CanCon, right? Yeah, yeah, we, we have the Broadcasting Act, and, and it specifies that, like... CRTC? You have to have some amount of, of Canadian content, and, and, like, when you're doing broadcasting on whatever radio, TV however else you want to broadcast things, you have to, some amount of it has to be, you know, Canadian, Canadian however you define that, you know, yeah. so that's why you get some like, some great Canadian songs that are played over and over on our radio stations. Nickelback, Albert yeah. Lafine. <laughs> There's a, you know, uh, Rush. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> and that's how, that's how we keep Canadian culture that's alive. That's how we keep Canada alive. <laughs> <laughs> Listening to Nickelback <laughs> and Rush. Oh, God. We should we, tear we it listen, down. <laughs> we, we listen to, to one Nickelback song every hour on the hour just that's to remind just, ourselves that we're Canadian. Canadian. <laughs> yeah, but I, I mean, like, but, but, but really, um, we... We do have like the CBC that is supposed to, you know, create Canadian content, and we have a few, you know, we have a few uh, like TV shows and, and other producers and things, and we put a lot of grant money into, to you know, having these industries, yes, so that which, we don't just consume American culture. Yeah, and I but, think yeah, we're on a bit of a journey that way, like in terms of like often like things like institutions like the National Film Board and like and like Canadian writing grants and things like this, things that have uh, traditionally you know been part of like a national culture project, uh, have been dramatically gutted uh, in, in the face of austerity. And I think now also there's they were inefficient. If the market wanted Canadian content, then yes. the market would have created Canadian content. No, the market the market wants American content, right? And this is <laughs> this is why you need the the whole issue. Well, the market is American, so yeah, well, exactly, yeah, and so we we, we are it's not surprising, yeah. I, I mean, at, at, at like what 35 million people in Canada, we're a rounding error, <laughs> uh, in, in the consumer market, so I mean, yes, but also, uh, I guess we're significant, yeah. we're significant, it is significant um, in the statistical sense, <laughs> it's like not in a cultural, political sense. Canada's in a weird position because we're sort of like we're not completely antagonistic to the U.S. empire. We're sort of a junior partner, right? We are kind of allowed, we're allowed to continue existing and we kind of do one thing. Uh, Resource extraction. Yeah, mining. <laughs> Just like a cell station. Just like, yeah, Canada is a legal pretense to graft mining cons- consortiums <laughs> onto. So, If you want to get something out of the ground, you call Canada. You call Canada. <laughs> we don't care. We'll bribe anyone, kill anyone, <laughs> suck anyone off. It doesn't matter. <laughs> we will get that out of the ground. We'll get you your fucking tungsten. And people will end up dead. So don't worry. <laughs> we will poison them. Yeah. Just ask Patrice Lumumba. <laughs> All right, moving on. <laughs> so, so yeah, so so there's kind of an allegory for us, I think, in terms of Canada and the U.S. Um, Absolutely, and how we kind of feel very much this. And then I think for me, then it was, and this is something I think we I earlier mentioned stealing Spectology's joke about remembering Empire. They they also raised an excellent point, and very much mirrors my feelings. So there's something strange about Americans writing about a person who has like a cultural obsession with a dominant culture yeah um because it's one of those things like it's i think it's a it's a well-documented phenomena of like a of like a a british or an american or a french person like you know loving the culture of like one of the colonies like you know like we all know people who are like really into japan or like the francophile or you know someone someone who loves someone who lives in a dominant culture but has an infatuation or a love with uh with another culture uh but that 
is very different because of the nature of power relationship, right? Like for an American to like love Japanese culture when Japan exists in a state of semi-colonization and vassalage to the U.S. is very different than a Japanese person who was like growing up with American troops all around and being forced to learn English. And, and if they and they, like, if they develop an affinity for American culture, it's going to have a very different flavor. Yeah. Right? It's going yeah. to be a very different thing. And this is something that I think disturbs me, I guess, a little bit about it. And I think it's, I think it's, um, it's not to impute anything onto, onto the author or anything like that. I think it's a, it's a cultural byproduct of the discourse. So it's very interesting how this like, yeah, notion of like cultural philias or for philias for certain types of cultures or exoticisms of different things uh, doesn't really work in reverse. <laughs> it doesn't really work with colonized people towards the empire um, because I think it's going to have it, it's going to necessarily come packaged with a whole bunch of ambivalences. Which, to be fair, I think in the in the, in the conclusion of the novel get addressed a little bit in the sense that she rejects M- Mahit turns down 19 ads like offer of a Texcalon citizenship. I mean, uh, there are sometimes though, and maybe it's maybe again, it, it, you know, this isn't a perfect allegory and this might be an example of why, but, um, a lot of people love Americana, right? And so it, you get Canadians who, you know, do road trips and, and whatnot through the United States to go see these like kitschy Americana things Mm-hmm. Um, but I think sometimes though they're they're sort of that might be even different. They're not going like, oh, I just love American culture. I'm gonna go see the. They're like, oh, I'm gonna go see these diners that were like a heyday yeah. of American culture, and and now like, yeah, well, that's almost more of decline. a yeah. That's also that's also more of like a historical like obsession. Right? Yeah, like, but I mean, like, I mean Americana I, I, in a lot of ways like, is a historical. Like our, thing. our our the 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 person you're speaking of our our mutual friend who like loves Americana uh, like is I think it doesn't just love America wholesale. Like they like like they like a, a particular historical and moment and like a particular like I think cultural uh, presentation that once belonged to the United States and is still there in and it articulates itself. But they don't like love America. They're actually very critical of well, like, I mean, US. yes, for sure, for sure. I think Americana, it's like as a thing, yeah, is very much that of like. Remember when America was great? I mean, I don't, <laughs> I don't personally remember. It's never been great, as far as I, it's never been great. It's certainly not in my lifetime. I mean, you do see it, right? You and you talk like I've even seen people talk about like First or Fifth Amendment rights. You know, like, like unironically, someone will say, "What about my First Amendment right?" Yeah, you know, like, or like, "Oh, the, I'm going to plead I mean, the fifth. And, not a thing in Canada. <laughs> uh, yeah. So it's like, I think it's to the point where like... I'm going to press people, charges against yeah, you. Yeah. Some people exist, like some people even like walk around in Canadian society believing that American laws govern their lives. Which is wild. <laughs> That's fucking mind-blowing. Uh, and I think and I think it speaks to the like the level of control and power they have. Largely, it's a, and it's a soft power, right? They, they yeah. got that idea from watching TV and movies and from the U.S., and absorbing, I think, also a broader political discourse about the U.S. It's fucked up. <laughs> and, it's, and, it gets, and it gets even more fucked up when you're not an Anglo-speaking white person, right? Like, you know, uh, speaking to the earlier example, the person from, from Japan or Korea or, any, you know, or anywhere else the U.S. has kind of colonized, right? And is, or, or I think Europeans also very much feel this uh, in a way. Like, you know, you have, like, the Americans are there. Their, their military bases are on your soil, and you're very much forced into, and your country's very much forced into a relationship with the U.S. And that creates a lot of problem for you personally, and, and it does and it does threaten your, your society. 
And so yeah. I think it's, so it's weird. So it's weird to talk about this person. Like, like I think a lot and lots of people, like lots of people go from Korea and Japan and Germany and Italy and, you know, and, and or, you know, like Somali even, and like through the U.S., through the project of U.S. Empire and, or South America and come back to the U.S. and, and work and live there. Right. Uh, and, and, you know, and then, and that becomes their home also. But I think they have a complex ambivalence because I, I don't think those people, you know, um, go and then it'll be like, yeah, and you need to bomb the shit out of Venezuela tomorrow. Right? Like, you know, <laughs> yeah, there is you a weird thing. You don't necessarily want to see everything that makes your home country distinct annihilated um, by neoliberalism. So I think that's my, my primary point is that like there's a, there's a weird, I think that dimension is missing <laughs> or, is, or at least takes on some weird connotations in this book. Yeah, it might be weird to talk about this in some ways, but I often get the feeling that Americans, sort of in this like American exceptionalism sort of way, they're like, but America is so great. Yeah. Everything we do is great. And mm-hmm. everybody in the world looks up to us because everything here is better than anything anywhere else. Yeah. So, of course, people love American culture. How could you not? Yeah, our culture is undeniably better than anything you've ever experienced. <laughs> it wouldn't be all over the world if it weren't that good. If it weren't good, yeah, it's there because it's meritous, right? And because it promotes merit. Yeah, yeah it's a meritocracy. <laughs> yeah, it's a meritocracy because it wins all the time, and it wins because it's meritocratic. <laughs> right. Okay. <laughs> and and so having this book written by, you know, by an American who has someone from outside the culture looking in going, wow, they're really great. Sure, this empire's got some problems, but it's just priorities are misaligned. Yeah. Yeah, it's priorities are misaligned, but it, it's a great thing. <laughs> it's, a, it's a great thing. In and, and of they itself. Do, they are demonstrably better writers than we are. Yeah. yeah. And you're sort of like, I don't, this feels weird. <laughs> like, so to, to me, I see that where I'm like, are you aware of what you're doing here that like, wow, my culture is so good, way better than everybody recognizes that it's better than their culture. And the American Revolution is a truly great revolution and that the American Constitution is a uniquely emancipatory and transformative document. Uh, like these are things people, these are things people believe, ostensibly progressive yeah, progressive people in the United States believe, right? There are people who who want socialized medicine and believe that that the, the that the US Constitution wants that, like that that is right. in, yeah, in yeah, the yeah. telos, like that the problem the problem is is a disadherence to America's core values that has <laughs> caused that to happen and not a structural uh, facet laid down by the framers to, you know. Anyway, we I'm getting on my soapbox here. I, I mean, like, in some ways, yes. There are parts of American culture that were revolutionary. Sure. The idea that anybody was given a vote was, you know, pretty wild at the that time. Was, that was a departure. Yeah. Yeah, from the divine right of kings. Yes. Yeah. 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 Sure. Um, it does also have structural inequalities baked right into it. Slavery is allowed. Slavery is... Slavery, slavery is, is, is right in there. Yeah. Um, so, like, yeah, like, uh, sure, there are parts of American history that were, like, genuinely revolutionary. Those are all done. George Washington has nothing left to teach. And even he was not a great guy. Well, certainly not. I mean, yeah. What was was Joe Biden's recent tweet? Um, Trump is America's first racist president. Yeah. <laughs> sure. Like, and, and, that, and that just It, was, it wasn't the guy who actively held slaves. And, and this is not to say that, you know, no parts of American culture are, are decent anymore. Yeah. 
It's just but, not, has but no moral. on the whole, on the output, the number of output that they have, yeah, of course, there's going to be some some good stuff in there, right? Mm-hmm. But the reason that it's played all the time in Korea is because of the American military bases in Korea. Yeah. Right? Like, the reason there are Tim Hortons in Afghanistan is not because Tim Hortons produces the best coffee. Yeah. It's because we have Canadian soldiers there who will drink it. Yeah. Yeah. It was literally, That's yeah. why it went there. Yeah. Only to serve that little demographic that it has. <laughs> the much the same with, with this culture that it like it goes places yeah. because they're they bring it with it, them. It creates the need. Not yeah. because it's better than the existing stuff. Yeah. So recently US Force Command has redeployed a large number of American troops from Europe from Europe. They're they're bringing they're reassigning a large number of their other standing force in Germany, uh, so it, mean, it means that six thousand U.S. soldiers will be coming back home, presumably to fight the war against uh, Antifa, I guess. And so and so, but you know, and you, but you see, the Guardian published an article uh, saying like Germans decry departure of U.S. troops, and, and when you read the text of the article. Uh, what it actually says is the town chamber of commerce says this is going to cost us a lot of money <laughs> because they're going to lose a lot of business, right? Like, you know, so like having having the reduction of the number of U.S. personnel that they have to feed and got paid for is going to hurt their businesses. Uh, but very misleading, an extremely misleading headline to say that the Germans are very unhappy that U.S. troops are leaving yeah. <laughs> versus uh, some people are going to maybe lose some money. That's my little rant about like American exceptionalism and culture. And well, I think anyone who's in a, you know, a U.S. and by extension, I guess, a Canadian context uh, needs to be aware of the dangers of nationalism and how <laughs> it will poison your fucking mind <laughs> <laughs> and blind you to all kinds of things that should be ridiculously obvious. Yep. Uh, the thing I want to move on to now, if it's okay with you, is also the role of then class. Yep. Because what you have here is you have a person who is also like, they're not an average stationer on the cell. Right, this is presumably someone that's part of the ruling. Like this is a, this is a person of high class position. Yeah, I mean, I think so. Inside, like, like you know, like it's you don't like, just get to be an ambassador out of nowhere. Yeah, yeah. So this is a person. So this is a person who's already of the leadership cast of one group, uh, simply kind of like having an affinity for the leadership cast of another group because they also don't become an average text colon like worker. She doesn't. She doesn't go like, man. I'm gonna go. I'm gonna go be a barista in a coffee shop on text colon. You know. She's like, <laughs> Right, just hanging out with princes and nobility and all these people. It just goes to show that like there is a class affinity can transcend nationhood, right? And this is this is something that happens, I think, a lot uh, in regards to like diasporic communities as well. So uh, like often, so often you have people who are like, so you you can find like there are people um, who once did live in a country or whose family lived in a country and they migrated the U.S. Uh, in part, in part because that was maybe in their interest, right? Maybe there was a change in the power relationships in their society. I know one woman, her her family was nobility in Tibet and China invaded and, and they, she came to be in Canada because her family migrated from Tibet after after China invaded, right? Um, so she has, you know, so this person, she has a very particular pr- perspective on Tibet, right? <laughs> one, one which is very much shaped by the kind of historical class interests she held um, and aren't necessarily representative of the feelings of people actually living in Tibet. Mm-hmm. <laughs> right. I'm just, you know, like, that, but, but I think one of the ways that 
Yeah, and I think that that's that's important to understand. And I think because we see this all the time, where someone brings up a, well, I know someone from Group X, I know someone from Venezuela, and therefore we should be bombing. Why are we not bombing Venezuela right now? You know, I think a notable example is Bana Alabed, who was like a, a girl. She was she's a Syrian a Syrian nine year old back in like 2017 was tweeting, "Help us, America, bombs like invade Syria, <laughs> basically." Uh, and then people were like retweeting this, being like, "See, like we have to, my God, this girl is begging us to do something." we have to this person who lives there the syrian is begging us to do something and it's like no it doesn't work that way like she was living in turkey at the time like her family was of a particular uh had again a particular sub you know a particular group inside syria so it's like you got to think about these things i think of like um a lot of the ukrainian diaspora in canada yeah that like there are distinct waves of of ukrainian uh emigration yes right the like there were there were people who were were socialists, or or whatever you know, radicals yeah. that were were essentially forced out at gunpoint. Yeah, by the by the czar. Or, it was like or the Bolsheviks, like whoever <laughs> that that left because it was like you're probably going to die if you stay here. Yeah. So they came here, and uh, and and then they would have a very you know particular perspective on on um, Eastern European politics and everything and yeah. and they'd be like yeah those people are real bad they tried mm-hmm. to kill me like we should help overthrow them uh and then it, in some ways it sort of leaves behind a particular viewpoint right like if yeah. you force out all the people who are leftists then you don't have leftists in that country anymore yeah the next wave that came over were like the fascists that yeah, we rescued yeah. the, the banderite part of it is that i guess I was, I was i was listening to um someone speak about this today and essentially there was like there was uh the the home office and like in canada's like interior ministry uh, actually commissioned a study of the ukrainian diaspora mm. uh in the 20s and they said "Ooh, these guys are reds they're reds, right they're reds they're reds they're reds you need to and so actually canada deliberately implemented a policy to import, like, to import uh, people more right-leaning. And then, I mean, the Second World War came, and then all of a sudden you had all these Ukrainians who were literally affiliated with the fascists, yeah. like, with, with the Nazis, some even serving in the in the Waffen-SS and, and so on, um, and being brought, actively being brought over through a kind of, like, Ukrainian rat line to Canada. And, you know, and then these became, and Canada and the U.S., these became the Banderites, mm. uh, you know, the subsect of, subset of Western Ukrainian diaspora um you know and even to the point where like i think recently there have been pictures circulating of like some of the U- ukrainian uh ukrainian diaspora right. yeah, groups yeah. uh holding holding bandera's picture and you know and having like brown shirt style having youth brigades with like brown yeah. shirts and everything um you know plus also then whatever's going on internally to ukraine with the azov battalion and so on anyway we are digressing. Just to say that, like, there there are these groups that you know have come over, and now when they talk about the old country, you get some some interesting perspectives. And those things are and those things are contested in the diaspora. You know, yeah. like, like I have Ukrainian neighbors who love the Soviet Union. They grew up there. That's like that was their home. Like they they feel a great affinity for it, and they were sad to leave in the, right. in the in the eighties and nineties when everything was falling apart. Right, and then I have other ones that are like the the Soviets came, and try to wipe all Ukrainian identity and ethnicity off the earth. Uh, you know, and that's for me as a person who's not Ukrainian. I don't know. What to, right. I don't know who yeah. do you believe? I'm thinking of Prince Harry. Yeah. Right. A great, great Canadian immigrant. Yeah. Mo- mo- has moved to Canada, uh, you know, cut ties with the Royal family, whatever that means. 
he's not going to be living here a hard life. No. Right? Like, for the first whatever number of months he was here, the Canadian state provided security for him, mm. which they don't do for the average citizen. No. So, I mean, he'll probably be governor general eventually. <laughs> <laughs> it would only be fitting. This sort of like, this this class transition, he cut ties with whatever, you know, the imperial country he was in and came to the colonies. But, you know, his class afforded him the ability to just sort of like cut the line. You know, he didn't have to, to meet the immigration standards or anything to, to move here. He's wealthy enough that it's just sort of like, well, sure. Welcome. Come on in. We're happy to have you. I, I, I kind of think of that as like when Mahit, you know, goes to, takes Kalan it's like, well, yeah, like, there's no struggle there for you. That's easy. The ruling class has interests with fellow ruling classes. Yeah. And I think one of the other things that comes out of this is also then that, like, this notion that, like, yes, people flow into the empire, but also then that changes the empire, right? The empire is also shaped and changed by the people it imports and it, it subjugates. Uh, and then, and then ensuingly, because of this inevitable fact, then also has a rush of anxiety about it. Mm. and fear uh, <laughs> you know they've, they've brought all these people in to use them for their labor and their ideas but they don't want their them to change them internally either so it's a tension i guess in empire which was like i think you see playing out in their like in the u.s and immigration all questions. the time yeah right yeah. <laughs> like you know like well we don't want to stop the we don't want to stop siphoning other countries talent and manpower and resources but we don't want them to change us well this is why they have like illegal immigration yeah. and and they go after the the people coming here for you know a below minimum wage job uh, instead of the people hiring them. <laughs> we really want you to come here and work. We just can't tell you that we really want you to come here and work yeah. and more importantly we can't tell our citizens that we want you to come here and work when, and you want and you want a group of, of less than citizens for you to abuse absolutely in your, in your lowest level of your labor pool right it, it, whole bunch wouldn't of be a market without advantages them. yeah that's right <laughs> so yeah so that's which is something we see absent from Texcolon. although we do see uh in Texcolon the use of slaves or people who i believe are slaves uh, at least, because although for Texcalon citizens, there is a very strong prohibition on cybernetics, you certainly see uh, the existence of at least one group of more or less cybernetic slaves, I guess, the in, sunlit? in the sunlit. Yeah, in the sunlit. So, like, they're, they're, their whole city is a planet, Alicorazont. Uh, their main planet is the planet of Texcalon. Um, and basically, it's all run by, like, a giant AI, and it has, like, cybernetic tendrils into, like, meat puppets, that are like its police, uh, who are known as the Sunlit. And and it, it was not made clear, probably intentionally so, how much control the AI has over the Sunlit. Because yeah. they seem to pop up wherever the city needs them. They're just sort of directed there. Um, and and uh, when they operate sort of as a group, they are very uniform as though, you know, they were a single organism. Again, it makes sense because we talked about like how do they overcome the economic deficit of not being themselves transhumans? Well, all of their transhumanism is forced onto somebody know, it's else. Like they get yeah, they have the privilege of being human, and other right. people have to forego their humanity. Partially, then subsequently justifying their behavior. Like you know, you see how it how it all kind of feeds in. It's all part of an ideology, which was cool. Which is like a cool liminal thing. I'm, I mean, I'm sure we'll find out more about it as the series progresses. series progresses. Yeah, neat. Yeah. It was a good book. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I liked it. And uh, I think we had a good conversation. We got to talk about Ukrainian diaspora politics. Always a favorite. <laughs> uh, I didn't even bring it up. Uh, one of the things we want to announce to people is, uh, you know, if you listen to this and you might want to pick up a copy 
of a memory called Empire. Uh, I would encourage you to use our bookshop.org shop. If you go uh, type bookshop.org, Androids and Assets, you'll go right there, and then we'll have a list of all the books we've talked about. Uh, Memory of Empires can be right there. You can click on it, you can buy it, and we'll get a little bit of money, which would be fantastic of you. We would really appreciate it, like a lot. Yeah, and if you enjoyed the if you enjoy the show, if you're like, great, I want more things that pair seemingly random books with uh, Ukrainian diaspora <laughs> politics, you can follow us, like, subscribe. We're on all the main podcast platforms, and if you really like it, uh, please leave dump a review or uh, you know, or <laughs> click on those stars or thumbs or <laughs> whatever you got it, whatever your app has. Uh, we would really appreciate it. Yeah. You can uh, you can also find the show uh, on Twitter. We are at AssetDroid. Uh, you can also find me, Marshall, at EconoBoyd. And you can find me at SteveDroids. Yeah, so the next time that uh, you are uh, meeting with uh, officials of a foreign nation, <laughs> uh, put us on, you know, like see if there's maybe this can stimulate some uh, some new policy options for you. Hello, and welcome to Androids and Assets. I'm Marshall. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm Steven. And I've done this like four fucking times.